Uh, anyone uh, else feeling the rush? Uh, the pressure to get everything done, the pressure to get everything just right. Yeah. Um, you could include me in the message this morning, okay? Uh, just, just, I did one of those things that I rarely ever do uh, around this season of the year. I actually went to the mall shopping yesterday on the last Saturday before Christmas. Me and 56,000 of my closest friends shoulder to shoulder at the mall. And the parking, the parking. I parked somewhere on the outer edges of the solar system. I promise you, I saw Saturn go by twice and Pluto at least once just waiting for a parking spot. And then once I got inside, I'm one of those missional kind of shoppers. I mean, I know exactly what I'm going for. And so I was weaving, cutting, and, you know, and, and basically just, you know, rushing through the crowd. And, and, and it hit me. Yeah, I'm preaching to myself this morning. We don't often talk about Christmas and talk about rest. There is a, an old Christmas carol that sings of that. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Uh, right? You've sung it or you've heard it this holiday season. Um, but let me just ask you, okay, my experience yesterday afternoon with 56,000 of my closest friends. Had I gone back to Stonebriar Mall at 3 a.m., where would I have parked? Right by the front door. There would have been nothing happening. It would have been peaceful and quiet because the mall was resting. Now, see, the, the issue for me is how do I get that in here, in the midst of everything else that's going on out there. With the crush of the Christmas season, with the rush that, uh, in which things just come at us this time of year, and the constant reminder that we only have three days, three shopping days left for Christmas, or whatever it is that causes that rush. So hear the word of the Lord this morning from Isaiah chapter, I mean, from, from Psalm chapter 46 and verse 10 and 11. The psalmist writes, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then he adds the pause, Selah. From the very beginning, from the very beginning of time, God has ordained rest, has he not? Six days, Genesis 1, you shall work. But the seventh is to be about 
rest, a Sabbath, a day of true rest. And so, from the very beginning, a seventh day for rest. Did you ever pause to reflect about the fact that every culture in the world observes a seven-day week? There's real uniformity worldwide on that issue. There's debate about how that came about. Genesis would tell you it's real simple. You know, when God ordained and created, he, you know, he instilled that in man from creation. And though man went in so many different directions, you know, in, in terms of, of, of ethnic origin or religion, you know, somehow it stayed with us that we have this seven-day week. Now, in the Scripture, when the children of Israel were being instructed about how to, how to go about that pattern of how to live their lives, you know, God says one day a week you really have to observe Sabbath. You have to rest. And then on top of that, when, he gets into, when they finally get into the promised land, he says, now here's what I want you to do. Once I've given you that land, here's what I want you to do. I want you to observe another seven. Every seventh year, I want you to allow the land to, to lie fallow. With, I don't want you to plant any crops. I want you to depend on me to supply for your need in that seventh year, just to trust me to see what I can produce without your effort. Do you remember that one? Called the sabbatical year. And then there was another inter- interesting festival or observance that was instituted in the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. It was called the year of Jubilee. You see, at the completion of seven years, uh, seven times seven years in the 49th year, there was a ceremony that in which, in which everyone was to rest And all debts were eliminated. All prisoners were set free. The land was allowed to rest and lay fallow for that year. And and all of the families of Israel, the land was restored to its original, I was going to say owners, but really its original tenants. Because the clear teaching of the year of Jubilee was that God owns it all. It's all his, I'm saying. And, and so whatever God has had given to those original 12 tribes, those families of the 12 tribes, on the year of Jubilee, it all went back to the original families. Everything had to be restored, which had been lost by even previous generations. Now, in the Hebrew, it called that festival that the year of jubilee hovel and and it comes from from an old hebrew word havel which was the word for the ram and so when 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 it was celebrated they blew the, the first thing that happened is they had the the solemn assembly of all of Israel, every man, woman, and child together before the presence of the Lord on the day of atonement. And after and 49 years had passed, seven times seven years had passed. And it started with the blowing of the horn. Now, did you want to hear me? 
I was no trumpet player in school. I can't do this. Does anybody, you got any trumpet players here? Do you, do you play trumpet? Oh, please come up. Yeah, okay. Okay, all right. Hannah, um, you're playing trumpet in the, in, the, in the middle school band, right? Okay, just give that a toot, would you? You know, loosen the lips. You know, do that thing you do. And go ahead, blow it. It's, yeah, it's very different from the trumpet, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't look like a trumpet mouthpiece, does it? Do you, do you want to give it a try? To pucker up, go ahead. It'd be good practice for... <laughs> it's a lot harder than this looks, doesn't it? Anybody else want to give this one a try? Got any more trumpet players? No, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah, the sister's in there. It's almost impossible, isn't it? Yeah, I couldn't do it either. Okay. Thanks, Anna. <laughs> I tried backstage. I couldn't make that. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but with the blowing of the ram's horn, you know, here's the solemn assembly of all of Israel there on the Day of Atonement. And this was the, this was the day of cooperative forgiveness, if you will, when that happened, 49 years had passed, and everybody anticipates it. This is the day, this is the day that our land is restored to us. Our debts are eliminated, our, you know, our, our freedom, you know what I'm saying? Because in the, in the Septuagint translation, this was the day of liberty. It was the, it was the blowing of the horn of, of liberty and declaring that everyone is free from bondage, if you will. And it was a day of rest and the declaration of rest, comfort, peace, and rest. And so how do we get that rest, that sense of rest and true rest in here in the midst of, of the incredible rush that we all feel at this time of year, this season of the year? Well, I want to suggest... We're going to do something I haven't done before. And I've been here a while, but I haven't done I have never read the Beatitudes out loud before in a service. But we're going to read them. It's going to take a couple of minutes to do it. And you need to listen carefully. And, and if you're a Hebrew scholar, please don't critique my pronunciation of the names, okay? But we're going to read that because, we, you know, because there's something about, that, you know, about when Matthew opens up this gospel for us and he begins to tell us who Jesus is, he, he is pointing us to where that real rest comes from, you see. And so, so this Christmas season, you know, if we want to rest, um, then th- there is a sense in which that we find in this Christ child, in him, the source of real rest. First of all, because, because the gospel, and we've talked about this before, the gospel is good news, not good advice. We talked about that before. Tim Keller in, in, in the book, Jesus the King, he, he talks about that concept that, you know, that is so incredibly important to us as we think about who this, this child is. It, it, this, this is the beginning of the gospel, and the gospel is good news, not good advice. And, there, and there's a real difference. And also, it's because for those of us with a past, for those of us with a past, though the past is in us is not forgotten, 
there is a, a recognition that peace comes and rest comes when we know it is forgiven. That it is forgiven. That all debt has been eliminated for us, our own personal debt. And third, because Jesus himself, Matthew says, is the source of real rest. And so, uh, so let's read. Mark, I mean, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. Now, in the King James, if we read this in the King James, which we won't do, we'd be reading a lot of begets, right? So here it is. The book, the book of the genealogy, literally the word there is Genesis, the beginning, the Genesis, the genealogy. We get the word, you know, we get the word genetics from it, you know, the the, the law of, you know, of origination there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah twins by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzzah, and Uzzah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, his, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation, the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, and Sheatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Behud, and Behud the father of Elikim. And Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar was the father of Mathan. And Mathan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, to whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, if you read both of the genealogies, Luke's and Matthew's genealogies, you're going to notice there are some differences. Matthew's genealogy, the the easiest and simplest explanation is that Matthew's genealogy traces the legal lineage of Jesus as that which would have been recorded by the priests in the temple. The legal lineage where Mary's genealogy traces that genealogy in the more proper way because you realize Joseph was the husband of Mary and the true father of Jesus was who? The Holy Spirit in Mary. And so in verse 17, Matthew says, listen, 
So all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay. So let me unpack that with you for a moment. Um, First of all, the gospel is good news, not good advice. The story does not start out once upon a time, does it? That's the way fables and fairy tales and myths start out once upon a time. Matthew is, is telling us that the event, the, the birth of Christ, is grounded in human history. And Matthew would have known how to have gained access to those historical records. He certainly would have had, you know, what had Mary and, and Mary's family and other extended family that he could have interviewed. Matthew, being a public, a publican, a tax collector, would have also known that Roman tax records required that every in every census that every person be identified, you know, and their families identified back seven generations, you know, but there was a a purer and truer source that Matthew could have used, and that would have been the temple records itself. If you're familiar with the the Luke's uh, record of Jesus' birth, after eight days, what did Mary and Joseph do with the baby? They took the baby, their firstborn son, who would have been the one who would bear the name and the lineage of the family. They took him to the temple for the rite of circumcision. And in the rite of circumcision, with the cutting away of the foreskin of the child, the baby's name would have been written in the genealogical record of Israel with his own blood. And so what Matthew is saying to us is this child it was born into time and space history. This story didn't start out once upon a time. This is, this is a part of our human history. Now, it's interesting also to note that in the destruction of the temple, which came by the Romans in the second Roman invasion, when they destroyed the temple in 70 AD, all of those genealogical records were lost. Matthew preserves Jesus, legal lineage, and historical record for us. I'm saying, but the fact of the matter is, is that no Jewish person today could could prove that he was of the legal lineage of Messiah because those records no longer exist. They were lost to the destruction of the temple. But Matthew's list and Mary's list are the ones that we have. Now, why is this important? Because the gospel, you see, is rooted in history. It's something that was accomplished by God. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. Advice is aimed at telling us what we must do, what we have to do, where, where news reports to us what has already happened, what's already been done. Advice puts the onus on us to make something happen where news urges us to to simply recognize and acknowledge that something has happened already. With advice, it's up to us, but with news, it's, it's, it's about that which is already being, has been accomplished in human history. So let's say that your city is under siege with an army attacking. 
This is the, the illustration that Timothy Keller uses in his book. What that city needs is military advisors to tell them how to train their army or, to, or where to place their battlements, where to put the infantry, where to park the tanks, because there's an army invading, and so you need military advice. You need advisors, good advisors. But if you're a great king, and you've go, already gone out, and you've saved the city by defeating the enemy, and you've eliminated the threat, you don't need advisors. You send messengers to share the good news. You send what, in the Greek, you send angeloi. You sing angels. Does that ring a bell with the Christmas story for you? See, the word gospel is the word euangelion. It's good news. It's not... It's not good advice. It's about what God is accomplished, has accomplished in human history. The gospel is, is rooted and grounded in our history. That's good news. And the difference is in our response to that. You realize that, that all other religions on this planet offer us good advice. Good. Some of it's very good. It's, it's good advice. It's rules for living. It's, it's what we must do to accomplish, you know, that, that goal, which, which is whatever they define as salvation. And it, but it depends on us following that advice, following those rules, in, in whatever the rules of engagement are. But with Christianity, it's different. It's, it's because in, with Christianity, it's already been done. And so our response is a response of awe and wonderment, thankfulness and gratitude and trust. Faith in what has been done for us. Because the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. And that's what the angels were proclaiming. Secondly, the gospel is good news to anyone who has a past because though the past may not be forgotten, it is forgiven in him. I have a good friend. And um, his, uh, his son finished graduate school and was out and spent months looking for a really good job. And uh, parents, mom and dad were praying, discouraged because you know, things weren't happening uh, very quickly for their son. But the father was aware that the son had a little, you know, a little indiscretion on his record. You know, there was a, you know, when those, when those uh, um, security checks, when those background checks were run, there was this little indiscretion that showed up, in, and it involved, I think it involved alcohol. And, um, and so the father, in wisdom, counseled the son, son, you need to go back to the authorities and, and, and talk with them about how you could get that, you know, that, that record uh, expunged. Made good sense. And guess what? He did that. He, he went and sought, taking his father's counsel, he went back, walked through that, those steps, talked with authorities, and, 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 and basically got them to acknowledge that he you know, had, since that time, early in his college days, he had followed a different course in life, and they took that and expunged that from his record. And guess what? 
He's got a good job today. Now, everyone in this room, we've all done resumes, haven't we? When you do a resume, you want to highlight all that's good, don't you? Don't you? Seriously. If I'm writing a resume, I mean, I want to put on there, I want, I want to really call attention to all th- that is good. And, and if, let's say, if you flunked out of school A and then went to school B and finished there, school A rarely shows up on the resume. Am I right? But school B, I mean, where you actually got the degree and you actually, you know, you, did, you finished and you did pretty good, that shows up. But what do you, you know, you don't highlight things that are bad, and you certainly don't include on your resume things that might cause people to question. Now, what you need to realize is this genealogy which Matthew has given us, that in biblical times, in Jesus' day, that was your resume. Your family lineage, if you are well-heeled, from a prominent, influential family, a family that was considered to be righteous in all, you know, in all senses and had great reputation, that automatically just sort of opened the door for you. That would get your that gets you that gets you through the door, right? Isn't it interesting that in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, what in the world does he call attention to in the resume of Jesus? Past successes in the family or failures in the family? Failures. There are five women that are listed in the resume. Now, if you were growing up Jewish in that day, that would have popped. That would have, that would have, you know, that would have, you know, that would have floored you. Because women just didn't have a place in genealogies. It was all about who fathered who. Remember, we just read, you know, Isaac fathered, you know, Jacob. Jacob fathered, and down the line, Judah, and down the line. Say so. So women were did not ha- hold a place in society of, of prominence and importance. There was a kind of a, a, a sort of a they were sort of gender outcasts in that culture. And here it is, Matthew's including five women in the genealogy. Four out of the five aren't even Jewish. They're, 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 they're ethnically outcasts. And then several among them were involved in some really immoral kind of stuff. So they were, they were, they were moral outcasts in the sense that, that you know, that uh, that they would have been branded, their reputation branded in, in the culture of, of that day. It's strange, isn't it? Verse 3, Tamar. Who was Tamar? Well, she was a childless woman who, whose husband died and she had no child. And, and she dressed up as a prostitute and seduced her father-in-law in order to bear a child and ends up in the lineage of the promised Messiah. And, and, and then there was Rahab. Who was Rahab? She was Canaanitish. She wasn't even from the right religion. I mean, these were, you know, she was, she was an outsider in every sense of the word. Gentile, you know, uh, 
And, and Rahab was literally, she was a, a prostitute that lived in Jericho before the fall of Jericho. And because she, because she helped to save the spies that were sent to spy out the promised land, she, her life was preserved and she did what only she knew to do after the city was destroyed. She went with the Israelites and later married into a Jewish family. This prostitute married into a Jewish family and that very family becomes a family in the lineage of the Messiah. And then there was Ruth. She was Moabitess. Different country, different religion. Totally different background. And she marries Boaz. And, and Boaz gives birth to a child named Jesse. And Jesse will later give birth to King David. Are you seeing how incredibly... It, you know, to the reader of that day and time, to see what was happening here would have been astonishing. And then in verse 6... Solomon, born to King David by the wife of Uriah. Her name's not even mentioned, but you know who she is, right? Who is she? Bathsheba. I think he withholds her name because it's really more of a slam on David than it is on her. This, you know, King David, what was it about that relationship. You see, he mentions the wife of Uriah. You, don't, you know who Uriah was? That was one of David's mighty men. Early. Early in his life when he was hiding in caves. God sent some men to surround him that became his mighty men, his generals. They were the guys that shared his campfire. That Uriah was one of David's best friends in the world. And what did David do? He got tempted, and he took the very wife of one of his best friends, Bathsheba. And then, so that he wouldn't be found out when Bathsheba got pregnant with, with, a, with a child, he had Uriah sent to the front lines, and all of the rest of the men were called into retreat so that Uriah was left in the front lines by himself to, you know, to be killed. Essentially, David had him murdered. Are you getting the picture here? Those of us with the past, don't you see the, the hope and the rest, the peace that is offered in, 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 in just in the very, in the very genealogy of, of Messiah? It, it, it bleeds with grace. And see, Mary was even numbered among them. Think of this. Mary went, Mary went the rest of her days, a woman whose reputation had been marred by the fact that there were many who considered her as one who had given birth to an illegitimate child. And Mary was probably ostracized, ostracized in many circles herself. Sweet Mary. But do you get it? It drips with forgiveness and grace that God isn't finished with any of us yet. Because his finished work 
will begin when it's fully understood and embraced, begin to work on us. And first of all, that we might know that we're forgiven. And then last, Jesus is our ultimate rest. Um, Verse 17. I, 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 I pondered verse 17 for a long time. And I'm going to say what I think it means. And um, I have, you have to look for theologians to even discuss it. You do. I mean, I, I went to some commentaries and it took me a while before I'd get, I, I could get some discussion going with some other scholars. But here's what you need to see. In verse 17, Matthew says, So, th- so all of the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And then from David to the deportation, 14. And then from Babylon to, you know, from the, from the deportation of Babylon or the, or the restoration of Israel until the Christ, 14 generations. Now, you know, Hebrews were into numbers. And so the number seven was the, a very significant number to the Hebrew. It was the complete number. It was the whole number. It was the perfect number. And when the world was set up, it was established. It was established on seven days. And so into the Hebrew mind, this is the complete number. And they would not have read, they would not have read the word, the, you know, the word 14. They would have read two times seven. Seven plus seven is how they would have read that. So essentially what Matthew is saying to us is that there were, you know, between Abraham and David, there was, there was, two sevens, and then between David and the deportation, there was two more sevens, and then between the restoration of Israel back after the deportation and to the birth of Messiah, there were two more sevens. There were six sevens. What does that say about Jesus? He's the seventh seven. In much the same way, that when scholars look at the first miracle of Jesus and he took six stone water pots that would be made into wine, the scholars talk about Jesus as the source of the wine was the seventh. He was the maker of all good things. I think Matthew's trying to tell us Jesus is the Jubilee. He's the source of rest. For us, this little child born to us is the source of real rest and peace. He is the one who sets us free, even the prisoner. He is the one who cancels out all our sin and debt. He is the one who restores all that, you know, that has been lost spiritually, who gives us back our lives and our place with God. He is the one who he is the one also who owns it all. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized Luke chapter 4, let me read this to you. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, this is the second recorded sermon of Jesus. You follow? Now, if any of you can tell me what is the first recorded sermon of Jesus, I will buy your lunch, okay? Just email me this week. You know, if you, if you know where the first recorded, you, seriously, and that's a big offer, right? Right? To a, to a room this size, okay? But seriously, tell me when the, what the first recorded sermon of Jesus was, and I'll buy your lunch. This is the second one, 
Okay, And it comes when, right after Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he goes back into Galilee, his hometown. He goes back into Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue where he grew up, and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah, because that was the prescribed reading of the day. And they rolled out the scroll to that place in that, where that reading was to take place in Isaiah. And, and, and listen to what happens. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as he was custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he enrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the, uh, the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the scholars agree that what he is quoting there from Isaiah 61 is Isaiah speaking of the year of Jubilee. He is proclaiming this is the year of Jubilee at the beginning of his ministry. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Sabbath, rest. Okay, so to answer me this. So what was it that got Jesus in the most trouble with the religious establishment? Seriously. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. And then in the midst of that conversation, as we'll see in Gospel of Mark in just a couple of weeks, Jesus says, I myself am, I am that I am, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. And then, Matthew chapter 11, what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, this was the great call of discipleship, Matthew chapter 11, end of the chapter, come unto me, all ye that labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you, learn of me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you shall find rest unto your very souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God rest, ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Comfort and joy. O tidings of comfort and joy. The gospel is good news. Because of the finished work of Christ, not good advice not merely just teaching. At its root, it is good news. It sets the captive free. Those of us with a past can know that we are forgiven and free because He is the ultimate rest. Let's pray.